To the brightest audience in the country, I'm Fred Williams, host of Real Science Radio. And I'm Ryan Williams, creation speaker and software engineer. Well, Ryan, it's great to have you back in the studio. You're sitting in for Doug, who's out on the proverbial assignment. Yep, great to be back. An honor to sit in the very chair that Doug graces. That's right. So when you're here, that means we're going to go through Creation Magazine. So I'm looking forward to doing that. But we always have some really good news stories to go through. There's some breaking news this week and this month of January that we're going to go through. They're really cool. Some more interesting stuff from the Webb Telescope. Have you been following that at all, Ryan? Yeah, I've been following it a little bit, reading some of the new articles. And there's a couple really interesting things they've seen just through some of the imaging they're able to get that we'll get to go into and talk about today. Yeah, I can't wait to get to those because that is such great stuff for creationists. We have other news stories too, but you know what? I want to start with a Creation Magazine article because I know how I am. If we get on these news stories, we may never get to Creation Magazine. So we're going to talk about the latest edition from our friends at Creation Ministries International. They put out this magazine. Bob and I always felt this was the best publication in all of Creation. There's a lot of really good ones, but this has always been our favorite. Brian, what volume are we on? We're looking at volume 45, number one. All right. So... Is there an article in the focus? We usually go through the focus section because there's always really good summary articles there about really cool things in creation. Is there one that stood out for you that you'd like to go through? Yeah, there's one about fireflies and their synchronous lighting that's pretty cool. Okay. Yeah, I actually really like fireflies. I don't know. We don't have that many here in Colorado that I know of. But, you know, when I used to go visit my family in Missouri, and I actually lived in Missouri for five years when I was a senior in high school, then I went to college out at, it's called Missouri Science and Technology now, it used to be the University of Missouri at Rolla. Anyways, I lived there for five years. I loved fireflies. There was tons of them there. I remember when we went back to visit my parents out in Missouri, you, you, you kids were just, you couldn't believe, hey, what are these things? These are really neat. And you saw fireflies flying around while you were playing with your cousins out at night. So what's this story all about, about the fireflies' synchronous flashes? Yeah, so the article basically is talking about how the fireflies flashing is synchronous with each other. So you have a whole group of fireflies and all their flashing, it works well together. This article talks about how previously they thought it was due to some internal clock that each firefly had, and they flash on cue as their internal clock goes. But this article... Which would be a real simple kind of... Yeah, a real simple mechanism, but... Would still be an interesting one, but Mm -hmm. there's some new research that's suggesting that it's actually a little bit more complex where a firefly will see another one flash and then it decides to flash itself. It's like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to do it myself. That's a lot more complex than internal clock because it requires, just requires a lot more. You have to see something, register that that happened, and then do that process yourself of flashing, which is pretty cool. Yeah, so the article, it mentions that the programming required for a fly to trigger the light-producing reaction in response to seeing other flies flash would have to be very complex. One of the researchers stated that the fireflies are, quote, doing computer science. Wow, so computer science in a firefly, 
That's information. And Ryan, speaking of computer science, you've got your degree in computer science from Colorado State University. In fact, you I'm just going to brag about you. You're my son. You graduated with a 4.0, and now you work at Micron as a firmware engineer working at you know kind of the lower-level software that talks to the hardware. And I have it on really good authority from people at Micron that you're actually one of the big rising stars of that company. So... Um, all right, all right, calm down over there. <laughs> so you kind of you know a lot about computer science. In fact, you helped me with my modeling paper that I hope gets published in the International Conference on Creationism because you did the modeling software. You helped with it. You were the team lead for your company before Micron on their modeling software. It's great having that kind of expertise helping out with Real Science Radio. It's nice. The experience can be a nice tool when you're looking at some of this stuff and you see the real master programmer and what he was able to do and just in the world he created. So it's nice to be able to kind of use that as a reference when looking at these things. Yeah. So this reference came from quantummagazine.org, which I actually really like that site. They, have, they do really good stuff on quantum physics. And they list the author as Jay Sokol, and he's the one who referred to the, and he's a secular scientist, and he refers to the Fireflies doing, doing computer science. So that's awesome. Let's do one more story in the magazine, and then I definitely want to get to these really good late breaking news items from the James Webb Telescope. Brian, a story I wanted to talk about is this one about salamanders, and it's titled Strange Salamander Restores Its Mind. And this salamander is known as the Axiotl. Did I say it right? It's a callback to, to an old show where we talked about a different feature of this animal, but you... Couldn't pronounce it then, and you still can't pronounce it now. <laughs> so I got it wrong again. Okay, so what's the proper pronunciation? I think it's axolotl. Axolotl, okay. But you know, there's, there's a couple, there's a Y in there that's a bit weird, so okay. we'll catch you some slack. Yep. Okay, well, anyways, this guy, is he's popular in home aquariums, and he, you know, salamanders are strange, but this one is real interesting. So it's able to regrow its missing limbs and organs, so we kind of already knew about that. And it allows the amphibian to recover from injuries that most animals would never properly recover from, even if they survived. So here's what's super interesting. It was found that it could regenerate even damaged or missing brain tissue. I mean, wow. Yeah, and that's what's crazy is there's, it's already cool enough that some of these animals can regenerate their body tissue, but to regenerate brain tissue, and the article even talks about how it can not only regenerate the brain cells, but also the neural connections between them which is really just remarkable stuff. Yeah, so I saw this article. I'm like, man, I, I, is there any way, God, can you make this happen for me? <laughs> oh, many years of losing brain cells, and as you get older and you forget things. So what a great feature. And the article mentions how could random mutations in natural selection gradually produce brain repair systems? I mean, there's no way you could explain that. It's yeah, just remarkable. I really like that point. One thing I think about with a lot of different stuff is, say that was to happen in the middle of the process of random mutations when the brain regeneration is half complete, that thing's going to be worthless and that salamander is going to die. The one that, if its brain's damaged, it's going to die. A half completed brain repair mechanism is worthless. Just like a, when you think about other complex organs like a heart, a half completed heart is as valuable as no heart at all. Yep. Well, that's a great point. And, you know, I've joked before about it's like shooting apples in a barrel, but then it turns out it's actually shooting fish <laughs> in a barrel. So kind of an inside joke with some of our listeners. 
Speaking of fish in a barrel, it reminds me of a living fossil fish that they found again, the coelacanth. Do you remember that fish from way back when? Yeah, I've heard about it. It's the fish that was supposedly alive 400 million years ago and then went extinct. But then researchers find it alive and well in the 1900s, doing doing just fine, swimming around. Yeah, that's right. So I think it was 1938. They actually found a coelacanth off the shores of Madagascar. They found a few cents. And then here, just again, here recently, this month, it was reported that extinct fossil fish dating back 420 million years found alive in Madagascar. So this is really cool. They found another example of this living fossil. Now, now the secular scientists, they don't like to refer to them as living fossils anymore because they, you know, that gives credence to creationists. But it's just, it's again, another example of something that they find in the fossil record that's supposed to be millions of years old. In fact, they claim 420 million years with this guy that went extinct and then they find one alive and it hasn't changed one iota since alleged 400 million years. And there's so many examples of life they find in the fossil record where there's no change. It's, it matches what the modern form of the creature is. Like they'll find a bat that's supposedly 80 million years in the, old in the fossil record. And guess what? It looks just like a modern bat. So that's really cool. Another great example that supports creation. It's stasis in the fossil record that supports really a global catastrophe. All, the, all this life buried Suddenly at once in a big global flood about 4,000 years ago. And the coelacanth is something they thought, you know, we find those guys buried in that global flood. But guess what? Some of them are alive and well. Ryan, we've got a few more articles in the Creation Magazine, but I want to get to these James Webb Telescope reports. This first article is from January 10th, and it's, the, it's from the skyandtelescope.org website, Sky and Telescope. And the title is, The James Webb Space Telescope is Finding Too Many Early Galaxies. And the subtitle is, Images and Spectra from the James Webb Space Telescope suggest that the first galaxies in the universe are too many or too bright compared to what astronomers expected. You know, they're expecting, they look way back into the universe and they want to see the beginnings, you know, near the Big Bang. And they're expecting to see infant, young solar systems, but what they find are mature, fully formed galaxies, which is what we've seen with the Hubble telescope. All these things confirm a biblical timeline, a biblical creationist worldview, and definitely argue against the Big Bang. Yeah, one thing that struck me was one of the first things you see when looking at this article is a heading that says young but mature. And if that doesn't sound like the biblical creation perspective i don't know what does and this i I remember i read that it was the first thing i noticed and i went back to the top of the page and i was like oh is this a christian outlet writing this article it's like no this and then as you read further on they talk about millions of years and stuff but i thought it might have been a creationist outlet because they're using those words and the guy who wrote it probably doesn't even know yeah exactly you know they have to you wonder if some of these guys actually realize that they're, you know, they're kind of kowtowing to millions of years and may not really believe it. I'm sure many of them do, but they have to worship at the idol of millions of years. But the James Webb Telescope has just been great for creationists, and this is just another example. And, you know, preparing for this show, Ryan, I actually went out to cosmologystatement.org. That was a letter that was published back in 2004, so almost 20 years ago, 
by a bunch of really a lot of secular scientists who were opposed to what they were seeing with the science behind the Big Bang. And one of the big names on it, among others, was Halton Arp. He was this astronomer who just felt like we got to be honest about the data. So I was real encouraged to go out there and see that this is still there. And I wanted to read from the, at least from the beginning of it to give an idea of the problems with the Big Bang. So this is how it starts. The Big Bang today relies on a growing number of hypothetical entities, things that we have never observed. Inflation, dark matter, and dark energy are the most prominent examples. Without them, there would be a fatal contradiction between the observations made by astronomers and the predictions of the Big Bang theory. In no other field of physics would this continual recourse to new hypothetical objects be accepted as a way of bridging the gap between theory and observation. It would, at the least, raise serious questions about the validity of the underlying theory. So I'd really encourage people to go to cosmologystatement.org, but this website's been taken over by a group, I believe, at Cornell University, and they've been producing additional articles against the Big Bang. And what I found interesting in this too is they refer to plasma cosmology. We did a show on that last year with Joe Spears. And this article actually refers to that as a better mechanism, something that makes more sense to explain what we see in the universe. And I'm just thinking out loud here, but I theorize, Ryan, that they avoid plasma cosmology because what we learned when we went through that whole show back, and again, I'd encourage people to go back to November and listen to those shows, is plasma cosmology can explain the universe and do it really rapidly. You don't need millions of years. Now, the guys who support plasma cosmology in the secular science world, they're still going to kowtow to millions of years. But the key here is they don't need millions of years. You can form galaxies in a lab with simulations and by running you know, these Birkeland currents and using electromagnetic radiation, you can actually form galaxy-shaped objects rapidly it's amazing how they kind of line up and look like little galaxies so if you haven't seen those shows you can go to rsr.org plasma and the first of the uh, four-part series of those shows will show up so ryan the james webb telescope it just continues to be a boon of great science for creationists for example when i open up the january 2023 newsletter from this website it lists quite a few secular articles published in their journals. And for, there's one here from Cornell University, The Astrophysics of Galaxies. And the title is, has JWST, and that's the James Webb Space Telescope, has it already falsified dark matter-driven galaxy formation? So, Ryan, what's the key takeaway from this particular article? Yeah, that one's pretty cool. The big line from there that was really interesting was says that galaxies formed in the ACDM paradigm, which is basically just the standard model for cosmology. Those galaxies are by more than an order of magnitude less massive in stars than the observed galaxy candidates. Yeah, so an order of magnitude less massive. And so the problem is they use dark matter to try to explain how galaxies form and why do they need dark matter because they're using weak the weak force of gravity and for gravity you need mass and so they, they're missing all this masses how could gravity do this even in even if you gave them millions of years well it can't so they came up with this idea of dark matter it's a fudge factor it's matter that's never been observed but they assume it's there or else or else gravity can't do its work but you know what plasma cosmology uh, plasma could do that work. Electromagnetism could do that work, and it could do it in a short period of time. But this article is pointing out this is evidence 
against dark matter forming galaxies. This is, and again, this is published at Cornell University. It's super interesting. And again, we continue to get data from the Webb telescope that is just fantastic for the biblical worldview. They know that these galaxies are mature, quote unquote, because they're expecting them to be really chaotic and not very uniform looking, like the Milky Way, for example, where it's a nice looking spiral that looks, you know, pretty well organized in a sense. Like it's and been there a millions, millions of years yeah. and had all that time to look that good. Mm-hmm. And they're expecting these ones out there to be really chaotic and just random, but they're seeing ones and they look kind of like the Milky Way does, where they're a oval or a spiral that looks pretty pretty set and not in the process of still quote-unquote forming by their dark matter gravity theory that yeah. brings all this stuff together. It's, they yeah. just don't look like that, and they, based on what they think, they should look like that, but they don't. Yeah. So the James Webb just adds another, you get another one of its many cool discoveries to the creation bucket, so to speak. Yeah, so looking way, way back in the universe, gravity's already done its work, that it's supposed to be still doing its work. I mean, you're supposed to be looking back in time towards the Big Bang, yet they're seeing these things as fully formed, mature galaxies. It's a serious problem for the Big Bang, along with so many others. In fact, we always encourage listeners, if you can go to rsr.org slash store, Bob Inyart did a great presentation on the Big Bang, evidence against the Big Bang. In fact, if you Google evidence against the Big Bang, I still think we're pretty highly ranked. But just go to rsr.org slash store, and you will love his video on evidence against the Big Bang. Very well presented. There's a really cool video at the end of that talk of going through space. It's an animation based on actual maps of stars and galaxies, and and you just see the pattern and design as you travel through the universe, and it's so cool. It's done in the backdrop of a really neat uh, Christian song, Our God is an Awesome God. That is such a neat segment, and that's a really great conclusion to a video that's just dedicated to showing you all the evidence against the Big Bang, because there's so much more that we could talk about. We've done many shows on the evidences against the Big Bang. So it's really neat having the James Webb Telescope doing that again for us right now. You know, live every day we're, we're reading about something new. Just this, the, this, you know, beginning of this week, January 23rd, there's another article that's out there from the Webb Telescope. This one's interesting. It's Milky Way found to be too big for its cosmological wall. Now, did you get a chance to look at that article, Ryan? That just came out this week. Yeah, that was, that was another interesting one. So they based it on a simulation, which always is a red flag of sorts because you never know what goes in a simulation. But assuming the simulation's right, they talk about the Milky Way being too big for the cosmological wall. And the cosmological wall, it's kind of, you know, it's a little bit complicated what it is, but it's basically if you kind of flatten an arrangement of galaxies, then there's the kind of empty regions around them. So if you kind of like flatten them into a 2D plane almost, then you see the empty areas, the voids. And these voids kind of like squash the galaxies together into kind of a pancake sort of arrangement, a wall. Basically, based on that, the Milky Way is a lot bigger than this wall, and it ends up being very, very rare in terms of all the other galaxies in the universe, because most of them aren't near as big as the Milky Way is. But the Milky Way is bigger. It just kind of shows, again, how we, even in our 
like galaxy point of view, our galaxy is still really special compared to the rest of them. Our planet's special, our solar system's special, and so is our galaxy now. Just another thing that makes it special. Yeah. Well, good point, though. On, you know, on simulations, we always have to be careful. Um, you as an engineer, my, myself, we always have our antennas up whenever any, anybody talks about modeling. I mean, I was the team lead for modeling, yet you can't rely on modeling and simulations as the be-all, end-all. So we have to be a little cautious when we look at simulations, but it's interesting when we look at this. It's basically saying, like you described, the Milky Way is way too big for its the cosmological wall that it's inside of. Most of the time, the vast majority of the time, galaxies are not this big that are spread out within its own cosmological wall. But the Milky Way is huge within it, its cosmological wall. And it's one in a million. They mentioned that they see this, maybe it'll happen one in a million times. So that would be pretty rare and pretty special. So it's, it's just interesting. I'm not saying this is some slam dunk thing from the James Webb. We already have so many great observations that we've gotten that just confirm a biblical timeline and a biblical worldview. But this is just another interesting piece of information that certainly doesn't fit their paradigm of our galaxy not being in a special place in the universe. And Ryan, it reminds me, speaking of us being in a special place in the universe, we've talked about the axis of evil. That is something that we visited several times on this show and I encourage people to go look at that, and I'll just summarize it real quickly. You could actually go to rsr.org slash axis and read about the axis of evil. And basically what scientists found was when you look at the temperature of space, you know, the background radiation, there's a slight variance in that temperature between either side of, if you imagine the Earth in a plane that goes across the universe, and that plane cuts through the axis of the Earth. On either side of those planes, there's a differential in temperature. And they call that the axis of evil. Because how do you possibly explain that if everything originated naturally from a big bang, you know, billions of years ago? That really does center the Earth on some special importance. Why would this phenomenon be observed? So it goes against the cosmological principle that you know we're not in a special place in the universe. Again, we've done a sh we've done several shows on that, but you can go back to our last show that we did. It looks like it was September 2013, and it was our show on Real Science Radio on the axis of evil. Super cool. I've looked into this more recently to see if they've been able to even come up with a halfway explanation. You know, because they're always trying to come up with ways to explain these problems. And this is still something that, as they as to, as to quote them, is terrorizing them. <laughs> it makes, I mean, they literally call it the axis of evil. They describe this, this thing that is hard for them to explain with their bad theory as evil, literally evil. Yep. And it goes back to, it's kind of disappointing. The article was interesting, but it was still kind of just, you know, disappointing and, you know, a little dis, just kind of disheartening when reading it because basically the whole second half, they're trying to say how, oh, well, you know, it's really cool. It's one in a million, but it's still not that special. It's still not that special where the mm -hmm. earth isn't in a special spot still, the universe still. They spend the whole second half trying to say how it's not, basically say how it's not that cool, actually. Oh, we just discovered this thing. It's really neat, but it's not that cool. It's not that. We're still not that special. Don't get in your heads that we matter. 
or anything. No, 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 don't worry about that. Just kind of disappointing to see that. But it's still just another cool, you know, feather in the cap of what really does make our galaxy and our planet in a special place. Yep. Well, you know, and there was another recent article from the Webb Telescope that they try to push is, you know, for their side, is that it found the building blocks of life when they look at this real cold section of space. And then when you actually go read the article, they're missing, they predict a certain amount of sulfur, and it's missing 99% of the sulfur they expect. So, you know, sulfur is one of the basic elements, one of the uh, building blocks of life, which is kind of interesting. I never really thought of sulfur as that important, but it really is. So even within their own articles where they try to push their worldview, there's always problems. I mean, the Webb Telescope is just not, has not been a friend of theirs. It has not confirmed many the predictions that they've made about the Big Bang and what they expect to see in the distant galaxies. So we'll continue to report on the Webb Telescope uh, with the creationist worldview perspective. And uh, the data is very much on our side. Yeah, there's, there's one more article we saw this week. It doesn't have to do with the James Webb, but it's from Huffington Post. So you can already guess that it's probably going to be dumb and you would be correct. Um, <laughs> it's, it's talking about how stars are disappearing from the night sky much faster than we thought. So it's pretty much just talking about how light pollution is making it harder for us to see the stars and it's doomsday mode. And while they make some accurate points that just having more light does affect some animals and their instincts are driven by knowing whether it's day or night. Yeah, sure. That is, I guess, too bad for them that the animals now have to kind of figure out a new way, but it's not as doomsday. Yeah, as that would be they're nice. saying it is like these animals are still alive. They're not dying because it's a little bit harder to know the difference between day and night. Yeah, it's a and it would be such a minimal effect. They you know, they and they really have no idea. There's no you know, comp, there's no study that goes along this with that shows okay how animals are affected. It I find it interesting and it this was actually also reported in Cosmos Cosmos magazine which when they reported it they didn't take such a doomsday approach, but of course Huffington Post will. And the Huffington Post, you know, they want to talk about how they got to double their efforts to get rid of night glow. So basically, that's the again the liberal men mentality. They want us to be North Korea. I mean, come on, in North Korea, I guarantee you, they can see a lot of the stars, a lot yeah, more they, than we can. Light here. pollution isn't a problem I, there. I can I, tell you that much for free. What, what, where would you rather live, North Korea, where you can see more stars? Or in the United States, we've got technology, and yeah, the sky's lit up more and whatnot, and you can't see quite as many stars. Well, here's what I recommend. Go find a nice mountain somewhere, hike up it, and you'll be able to see plenty of stars. You know, well, it, it's not that big of a problem, but they yeah. kind of try to make it out as it is. And let's forget how much light has done for the good of society. Let's just kind of throw, throw all that out the window. Well, just interesting, too, just to think of the concept of light. I mean, Jesus is light. And the world hates the light. They, you know, they run mm -hmm. the darkness. So, you know, it kind of fits their worldview pretty well. And it's not surprising that the Huffington Post would take this kind of slant on this study. There was kind of a community science study of, you know, interviewing people over a long period of time. And it didn't match what satellites were saying about the, the, the sky glow from, uh, you know, the, the light that we produce from our light bulbs and whatnot. So anyways, Ryan, yeah, that was, was just a cute one. Yeah. But it's kind of interesting, you know, see, see what they're up to these days at, at the Huff. <laughs> yep. So Ryan, let's try to do uh, one more 
story from Creation Magazine because we're getting low on time. So was there another one that stood out for you? Yeah, there was, there was one. Um, there was a couple really good ones, but for time's sake, another one I thought was really cool was a, a leg amputation from oh, yeah. a really long time ago. That one was pretty interesting. The title is Borneo Leg Amputation Defies Evolutionary Preconceptions. And it was from a really long time ago. The article says supposedly 31,000 years ago, but it wasn't that long ago. But we'll just go, go with a really long time ago. There was skeletal remains that they found a leg amputation on. And the person who it was ended up living about six to nine years after the amputation took place. So what makes this really interesting is these people from back then are supposedly, from the evolutionary viewpoint, supposed to be boneheaded and just not capable of doing an amputation where you have to have a pretty good understanding of just the human body. You have to know the muscle. You have to know about muscles. You have to know about bones. You have to know about um, veins and arteries so that the person doesn't bleed out when you cut their leg off. Yeah, and you, they, need, you need special tech, you know, technology and knowledge to, be, to do a successful amputation. Yeah, it's not some simple thing where you just take a you know sword and just sw- you know swat that thing off. Yeah, like and also not to mention the infections that can take place. So you also kind of have to be aware that there can be infections. So you have to keep it clean and make sure that that nothing's getting in there either. It's a really impressive feat, no matter what era you're living in, whether it's the 21st century or in probably what would have been my guess around three to 4,000 years ago when this happened. Yep, exactly. So this came from Nature Magazine, uh, number 609 back in 2022, and it was by T.R. Maloney. So Mr. Maloney wrote an article about something 31,000 years ago, which is baloney, surgical amputation of a limb. So we know that this was someone, again, Brian, that came off the ark. I like the way they concluded the article the writer for Creation Magazine said, this illustrates how evolutionary presumptions about human history are wrong. Yeah, it's just another, just another thing they're wrong about. That's kind of almost a theme for the show is just things that they assume that are just more and more, more, more we learn, the more we find out yeah. there's shown to be more and more wrong. And this is another one. Exactly. And it says this individual and his surgeons are descended from those who came off Noah's Ark some 4,500 years ago. The knowledge and intelligence shown by this evidence of successful amputation does not fit evolutionary preconceptions. Yeah, the one another thing I thought was interesting that they said a little bit earlier in the article was amputation in Western society has really only become a quote-unquote norm in the last hundred years. So this is a really oh. recent thing for us as what we would consider a very advanced society in Apparently, per this skeletal remains that we have, these supposed boneheaded people back then who weren't that smart and were still yet to evolve to where we are now, they're able to do something that we've only been able to do for the last hundred years. Yes, and we've done shows on the genius of ancient man. In fact, you can go to rsr.org. Guess what? Slash genius. Genius. That's what I love about how Bob set up his website. If you have something you want to look up, there's a really good chance chance that he set the URL to point to that show. So all you have to do is rsr.org slash dino slash genius slash plasma. And you'll find the show and you know the material behind what we talked about. It's really great. So Ryan, we're actually we're it looks like we're out of time. 
So I wanted to give one shout out to Grandpa McNabb. He sent me, he sent the studio a video he did on why are there 360 degrees in a circle and 365 days in the year. Great job with this video, Grandpa McNabb. This thing was 21 minutes long. It does a really good job of summarizing the evidence for why we have 365 days in a year when it used to be 360 days. Fits right along with the hydroplate theory. We love everybody. When you send in comments, suggestions, whatever you want to uh, talk about, just please let us know. We just love hearing from our audience across the country and really ac across the globe. We even hear from people from, you know, from Singapore and lots of different places, not just America. We really appreciate our audience. You can go to rsaw.org slash store if you want to sponsor a show. And we'll either mention your name or not, however you want to do it. But uh, again, rsaw.org slash store. And there's this link you can click on to sponsor one of our shows. So for Ryan Williams, this is Fred Williams of Real Science Radio. May God bless you. about.